Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Christchurch Banstead. It's great to see you. Welcome to the special evening we're putting on as part of our series of events this weekend. Tonight is all about life beyond anxiety. And um, thank you so much for coming and for joining us. My name's Andrew. I'm one of the ministers here, and it's really great to see you all. Uh, we hope this evening is helpful for you, uh, whatever your experience of the subject is, and uh, whatever your experience of church is in general as well. Uh, thank you to the band for playing for us. Uh, we'll hear a bit from them again later. And um, especially thank you to Helen. Welcome, Helen. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Great. And um, let me explain a bit how tonight will work. So uh, we're going to start by um, me interviewing Helen. So we'll talk to Helen about her story, then in particular um, about this subject of anxiety that Helen's written a book all about, Hope in an Anxious World. Um, then we're going to have a little halftime break with some more refreshments and things like that. The band will play a bit more. Uh, that's going to be a really great chance for us to think about any questions that we'd like to ask Helen. Um, we can uh, pop those in at that point and discuss them around your tables, uh, maybe try and come up with a really good one on your table uh, that you could ask. Uh, then after the break, um, I'm going to take us through an episode in the life of Jesus uh, that has uh, relevance to the things we're thinking about this evening. And then we'll be uh, having some questions with Helen, and then we'll be done uh, probably about half seven or just after. Um, just let me mention how you can do questions, Q&A, if we pop the slide up. Thanks. Um, if you go to the, the wonderful web address of ahaslides.com forward slash askhelen, uh, you will find um, a little Q&A place to put your question in there. Um, if you're really quick, you can scan that big QR code on your phone and it will take you there as well. Um, so um, just make a note of that or feel free to keep your phones on and open throughout this, this first part uh, and you can um, pop a question in then at any time, anything that comes to you. Uh, no question is too ridiculous, would that be fair? Bring it on, yeah. Yeah, great, excellent. And um, uh, what else was I going to say about Q&A? Oh yes, there is an, an, an anonymous option as well, so you don't have to leave your name, you can if you want, but don't feel that you have to, and you can ask anything you like at any point this evening, uh, and we'll get to as many of them as we can uh, later tonight. Welcome, Helen, again. It's great to have you. Uh, where have you come to us from this evening? Uh, from the wilds of Berrylands, so not that far at all, uh, just beyond Surbiton. Excellent. Um, and what do you do work-wise at the moment? Uh, for most of my time, I work as uh, the Director of Training and Resources for an organisation called Biblical Counselling UK. And that basically means I either get to sit and write books or I get to go around talking to lovely groups of people like you about uh, the difference that faith makes in some of the really tough uh, periods of life. Mm, great. And what do you enjoy, what do you love to do to relax when you're not going around churches talking about these things and writing books? Uh, so food is a, a big part of my life. I love growing food. I, I moved house, I got a 100-foot jungle this time last year, and I've gradually been hacking my way down it, um, planting the peas and the beans and the courgettes, uh, and um, I love eating that food as well. Not so good at the cooking bit. Yeah. Tends to be a lot of smoke when I cook things. Uh, okay. um, but, but the growing and the eating is all good. Excellent. Fantastic. Um, now let's rewind quite a long way to early... Helen's life and growing up. Did you grow up around here? What was early life and home life like for you as a child? Yeah, I grew up in, in exactly the same place uh, as I'm living now. I'm, I'm one of the least mobile people on the planet, probably. And um, I, I had a very normal Berylands kind of upbringing, really. 
I, I went to brownies. I, I learnt to play the piano relatively well. I learnt to play the violin spectacularly badly. Um, I uh, sort of I enjoyed having friends and roller skating. It, it was, on many levels, a very normal childhood. Mm. Uh, but on other levels, it was a, a quite a difficult childhood. There were lots of family bereavements uh, mm. within the first couple of years of my life, which mm. impacted my mother particularly badly. Uh, it was an incredibly hard time for her. Mm. And as I grew up, um, I discovered that I, I didn't really necessarily fit in mm. uh, at school particularly well. Uh, I, I wasn't sporty at all. Um, I, I had teeth that were slightly mad and um, just didn't look uh, necessarily the same as lots of other people. And that meant there was um, some, some bullying as mm. well, uh, which was hard. And was faith or religion or God or church a feature of childhood for you? Not, not massively. So my mum was brown now and I was a brownie and then a guide. So uh, I went along to church about once a month. Uh, but my experience of church was largely waving a flag and then counting the floor tiles on the carpet. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't really see anything of interest in church. Uh, and my family were a family of ex-churchgoers. So they'd been to church before I was born. Uh, but then they stopped going to church for various mm. reasons. Mm. And um, so I never went with my family uh, mm. as a child. Mm. So not fitting in, bullying, hard things we can, many of us, identify with. Um, what else was just really hard about your childhood that was maybe unique to your story? Yeah, when I was um, at primary school, um, it was decided that I was going to try and get into a a particular school. And I I really wanted to do that. Uh, I was was a relatively academic child, and so I had some tutoring, as is really common. Um, Unfortunately, my tutor was not a, a good man, Uh, And therefore, uh, the things that he was teaching me were not really maths and English. Uh, There was abuse going on um, from the age of... Probably started grooming about eight. The abuse proper from the age started at nine and went Mm. through till I was about 17. Mm. Uh, My parents knew nothing about it at the Mm. time. I didn't tell anybody. Mm. But that was something that made life uh, particularly hard Mm. um, in those years. Mm. So in those years then... What kind of impact was that having on you as a person? How did it sort of come out in your life? Abuse taints and twists everything. Um, It it twists your view of yourself. It twists your view of the world. uh, It twists how you engage in relationships. Um, And so by the time I was a, a teenager, I thought of myself as useless and worthless. Uh, I thought of myself as... Uh, worthy of nothing but, but pain. I, I was there to be used by other human beings. That's what I was told. That's how I'd been treated. Mm. Uh, I was also very angry. I was angry with a God that I didn't know if he existed or not for not protecting me. I was angry with my parents, who, who knew nothing about the abuse, uh, for not protecting me. Uh, I was angry with myself for not being able to fight back. Mm. Uh, and I was increasingly out of control. Mm increasingly not knowing what to do with these feelings of self-hatred, not knowing what to do with this anger, not knowing Mm. what to do with this sense of life being completely out of control Mm. uh, and um, struggling Mm. in the wake of those emotions. And then as you grew up a bit more, sort of late teens, university life, 20s, where did you kind of go with all of that emotion and 
where did you run to to try and make sense of life? I think it's a, a fairly common experience that we act in the way that we see ourselves. So if we see ourselves as worthless, we tend to act in very worthless ways. Uh, if we see ourselves as useless, we tend to act in very useless ways. Uh, and because I saw myself so negatively, because the, the, there wasn't a sense of anything good in my world, um, I acted in ways that were very destructive to myself yeah. and very uh, painful and harmful to the, the people around me as well. Uh, by the time I was uh, a younger teenager, I, I was, had an eating disorder. By the time I was an older teenager, I was self-harming. Uh, by the time I was at university in the first year, I was smoking heavily, uh, not just cigarettes, uh, and I was drinking very heavily as well. And there were moments when I didn't really care whether I lived or died. Mm. There were moments when I just thought it would be easier if the world stopped turning, mm. or at least if I wasn't on it. Mm. Yeah. Do you feel like there was a point of sort of absolute rock bottom what was the kind of lowest of that and then how how did that begin to change at all i took um i took an overdose uh, one day at university and uh, ended up in a and e and some friends of mine rallied round and said helen this this is serious you know we love you uh, I, I was always so blessed to have wonderful friends around me mm. um and unsurprisingly they were scared for me uh, and they didn't really know what to do, as, as most people wouldn't. Uh, so they went and talked to one of my tutors at university, and I was doing a biochemistry degree. I have really no idea why I did a biochemistry degree. I've <laughs> never been a biochemist, uh, but it seemed like a good idea at the time. Uh, and they weren't quite sure how to get through to me. Mm. But they talked to this biochemistry tutor, who quickly rewrote one of his lectures. And basically, I was sat there in a lecture hall for an hour, with this biochemistry lecture, I was going through the, uh, the, the damage that can be done through overdoses and alcohol misuse. Wow. Uh, I don't think you'd get away with that now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was a, a really... Um, I mean, he, he didn't embarrass me publicly, but yeah. I knew that everything there was kind of um, there to, to make me think. Um, and afterwards, I went to chat to him and went, look, I'm, I, think I, I think I probably need some help. Yeah. So I think that, you know, the, the overdose was probably rock bottom. Yeah. And the turning point was that moment when my friends encouraged me to go and see that lecturer uh, and just get some help. But at that point, I had no real idea what help might be. Yeah. And so your friends are being helpful. They've kind of uh, stage managed this lecture. Who else provided help? Because uh, I think a lot of us can maybe look at your life as it was then and think, wow, Helen then would have needed a lot of help. So where did that help come from for you? Who, who provided it? A whole host of people got involved, which was uh, really lovely. Uh, my GP got involved, and she was so kind uh, at walking me through and just meeting with me regularly. I had a dietitian get involved, uh, and they helped me understand what a normal portion uh, of food looked like. You know those mini tins of baked beans? I, I used to eat half a portion of, of one of those tins and, and feel like it was a huge meal. Um, and, and she just really helped me understand that actually that wasn't a big meal. Mm. Uh, and that actually uh, usually you would eat much more than that, uh, especially as a young person. Mm. And I was referred to uh, a counselling service and uh, they took me uh, through uh, what was basically an outpatient rehab programme. Uh, uh, one that addressed some of the underlying issues of my identity, 
but also one that helped me wrestle with the, the, the anxiety I was experiencing, the depression I was uh, experiencing, and uh, all the other complicating factors. Mm. Uh, and in the middle of that um, rehab program, I was asked to get a, a couple of sponsors. Uh, you may have heard that kind of term before, just people that walk alongside mm. you as you're going through rehab. And they were particularly focusing on my alcohol, uh, my alcohol consumption at that time, and so mm. it felt quite rehabby uh, there. Mm. Uh, and a lovely couple that I'd known for years. Um, I, they used to uh, help with a local piano competition. Uh, and I, I used to love playing in the local piano competition, so they'd known me since I was you know, that high. Mm. Uh, a lovely couple who, who happened to be Christians said they'd be willing to walk alongside me as I was going through this particularly difficult period of my life. Wow, that's amazing. And so this couple are, are Christians... Did, did that make a difference in how they cared for you, um, the kind of things they supported you with as sponsors? How did their Christian faith kind of come across to you then? So they weren't people that talked about God a lot. It, you know, it, it wasn't a kind of find a Bible and hit hell over, over the head with it. It wasn't yeah. that sort of uh, approach. They were just very quietly loving and distinctly different. Um, as I said, I, I had lots of friends, and that was uh, a joy and a delight. But there was something that really captured my imagination about this couple, largely because I was just so horrible to them. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I think I've painted a picture of a, a teenager, a young adult that was pretty out of control, and mm. therefore I was not nice in the way that I treated other people. Uh, and I, I'd stormed out of their house, and I told them I hated them. And they said, you're welcome back anytime." Mm. Uh, I slammed their door, and said that I didn't care about them at all. And they told me that they loved me. Uh, and I, I raged at them. I said, you know, you're so stupid to go to church. Why would anybody do that? And they just said, God loves you too. Mm-hmm. And I think over a period of time, um, I, I came to the conclusion that one, or two, one of two things must be an operation. Either the faith that they had made a massive difference to their life, to enable them to love somebody like me when I was not being lovable. Yeah. Or they were just bonkers. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think for a fairly considerable amount of that time, I thought they were just nuts. Yeah. Uh, why would anyone bring a tornado of chaos like me into their home? I mean, they had their own children. You know, I, I really disrupted their lives. Mm. And I thought they were nuts to do that. Mm. Uh, but I thought both options were worth investigating. So this amazing couple who are Christians are showing you uh, love in the face of slamming doors and um, the love of God that they believe in, in in the face of all that. Um, When was it that you started looking into Christian things for yourself? Was that with that couple or how did that come about? It was with that couple, um, although slightly indirectly. It it came to Christmas uh, and it was Christmas Eve. And they said to me, why don't you come to the Christmas Eve carol service? And I think out of a combination of intrigue uh, uh, at, at what you know, might be driving this couple, yeah. out of thankfulness uh, for, for their you know, immense support over yeah. a particularly turbulent time, and maybe just a little bit of guilt that I'd just been such a brat that maybe I ought to do something <laughs> nice for them at Christmas... Yeah. And also because they offered me mince pies, and I really like mince pies. Um, I I decided that I would go along to church uh, just once, just Mm -hmm. once, uh, to to do uh, Christmas with them. I don't don't remember an awful lot about that Christmas Eve service. I mean, I'm assuming it was about Jesus being born. 
because it was Christmas Eve, so it stands to reason that the, uh, the talk would have been something along those lines. Mm. Um, but I do remember being absolutely captivated by the story of a God who would come down and want someone like me in his family. Mm. I, I didn't really understand what that meant at the time. Um, I didn't understand who that God was, how it would all work, how my life would change. But in that moment, there was something of, but I'm a mess. Hmm. I've just been, I've been treated hideously. I have treated other people hideously. Everything that I am doing is utter chaos. I'm scared of everything. I'm angry at everything. But you're saying that God would leave heaven to come down to earth to love someone like me. Hmm. And that message just stuck with me. Mm. And that didn't shift for the mm. rest of Christmas. So was there like a big dramatic change or did that lead to you just asking more questions and going on a bit of a journey with it? What happened next? Yeah. I think from that moment, um, I think at the end of uh, Christmas, they said, well, do you want to come to church again? Um, and I just went, yes, yes, I do. You know, um, I didn't want the religious stuff. I made it really clear that I was not going to start wearing weird clothes I was not going to start kind of putting a bow in my hair and, and being all sweet and lovely as mm. kind of this image I have of religious people. Yeah. Um, Let me just check. No <laughs> I think we're all right. Yeah. Um, uh, but I wanted to know more about this God that I had just tasted a little bit of mm. over Christmas. And so I did start going along to church every single week uh, from then onwards. And I wasn't the kind of... Um, just sit down quietly in the pew and, and soak it all up kind of person. You know, I was still an addict at this point. Mm. So, you know, I would be in for half of the service, then I'd be out for a cigarette break, uh, and then I'd be back in for the rest of the service. Uh, and, and no one minded. Mm. Uh, I would be the one that, you know, that said, turn in your Bibles, and I'd be like, I don't even know which way up to hold a Bible, let alone mm. how to find anything in it. Mm. And they didn't mind. Uh, and they said, has anyone got any questions about God? And I was like, yeah, here's my 78 that I've thought of this week. Um, and they mm. didn't mind. Yeah. Uh, and over a period of about seven months, uh, I just did a lot of exploring mm. about who that God might be. Mm. And then, would you say at the end of that seven months, you were a fully-fledged Christian? At the end of that seven months, uh, there was an event, not, not particularly dissimilar to this, uh, although we didn't have a band as good as that, and that was great. Uh, um, and there was this moment where, where someone said, you know, is now the moment to start following Jesus? Uh, and I think everything in my head up to that point was, yeah, this, this God seems like a pretty good guy. These Christians, they seem nice, but no way am I going there. You know, you know I've read the Ten Commandments. There's a lot of do nots in there. <laughs> I don't want to do those do nots. I want to do the mm. things. Well, maybe not murder, but, you know, some of the mm. other stuff. Mm. Um, uh, and I was really adamant that whilst there was, there was you know, good stuff in, in this religious stif- stuff, that it, it wasn't for me. Um, but on that moment, in that day, when it was said, do you think it might be time to start following Jesus? There was something within me uh, that I guess in retrospect I would describe as, as the spirit of God at work. Mm. And my answer was yes. Yes, it is. Mm. I am in chaos and this, this God can bring me hope. I am a mess and this God can bring forgiveness. I am in darkness and this God can bring 
light. I am in, I'm walking, you know, slowly and actually quite quickly towards death in the way that I am living mm. my life. And this God is offering me life. It would be, why wouldn't I say yes? Mm. Yeah. And in that moment, uh, that was the moment I started yeah. to follow Jesus. And that is mm. almost, oh, I lose track. How long ago is that now? 33 years in about two weeks' time. Wow. And was it a case that sort of for you, everything changed then? Did What changed in terms of your belief, your how you related to God then, and, and what changed in your kind of life after then? I think it's one of those moments where everything changed and nothing changed yeah. simultaneously. Yeah. Everything changed in that I went from being someone that was far away from God to being someone that was really close to God. Yeah. I, I went from being someone that had no direction to someone that had absolute purpose. I went from being someone that had no hope to someone that had the hope of heaven and the hope of walking through the rest of this life with someone that loved me. Mm. I had the hope of knowing that, that life was under control. Uh, even if I was a tornado, that there was still a plan. So, mm. you know, that's, that's just a, an absolute shift. That's a 180 in life. Yeah. But on another level, I was still an addict. Yeah. I didn't stop being an addict. I was still depressed. I was still anxious. I still saw myself as useless and pathetic and worthy of nothing Uh, and none of that changed in that instance at all that all needed to be worked out in the months and years that followed and just describe briefly that that journey what is it like being a new christian having all those things in your life and going on what's that journey like what's it been like for you what's it still like for you I mean, on one level, it's brilliant uh, to know that there's hope, to know that there's security, to know that uh, there's purpose, to know there is a God worthy of my all uh, in in charge of the world is something that still brings me joy. And I I can't not smile as I say that because Mm. uh, it is so wonderful to have him as Lord and Savior and King. But actually, I went through, you know, a childhood uh, of bullying and abuse that was 20 years, uh, pretty much, of of chaos. Um, And that doesn't unravel in a few short moments. Hmm. Uh, I was in and out of rehab uh, two other times in the following 10 years after Mm -hmm. I became a Christian. There are periods when I I gave up drinking and I started eating and then moments when I fell flat on my face again Hmm. uh, and it all went horribly wrong. Uh, There were uh, days when I was confident uh, and secure and there were days that I forgot God was good and I panicked. Mm. There were days when I saw the light and the hope and the days when I couldn't see the hope at all. Mm. Uh, And so I suppose it it wasn't a kind of I became a Christian and then life did this. Mm. It, It was more I became a Christian and life did this kind of roller coaster of ups and downs the the general trajectory was coming clean uh, of seeing more hope of Mm. getting more secure Um, but it it was it was a bumpy ride Mm. and I'm so grateful that we have a God that doesn't give up in the bumps that keeps leading us through and I am so grateful that the church is designed as a community where we can encourage each other through the bumps as well Mm. I was so blessed by that, my, my church family, uh, so wonderful that uh, every time I fell flat on my face or I ended up in hospital again or ended up in rehab again, they just give me a hug and they pray. 
No judgment, no, oh, for goodness sake, Helen, it's been seven years. Mm. Just, just, I know it's hard. Let's keep going. Eyes back on Jesus. Together we can do this. Mm. And little by little, mm. uh, it begins to come together. Mm. Am I perfect now? Not by a long shot. Um, but am I drinking? No. Uh, am I smoking? No. Am I doing drugs? No. Uh, am I depressed? I, I wrestle a little bit with depression uh, mm. from time to time. Am I anxious? Yes, but nowhere near as anxious as I used to be. Mm. I used to um, actually physically harm myself so I wouldn't have to get on a plane mm. to go on holiday. Mm. Um, and, and gradually over the last 30 years, uh, I've moved from a place where I, I can't go on a plane at all to a person that can get on a plane with a fairly large quantity of tranquilizers, to a person that can get on a plane with a lot of prayer support and some panic texts being sent, uh, to a person that can now fly at least to to Dublin or to Belfast. Um, I feel pretty good about it. I haven't tried going back to Sydney yet. Great. I think that one's still work in progress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm, I'm someone that can, I can look back and I go, I'm nowhere near as anxious or depressed as I was. Yeah. I'm not an, an active addict. Uh, but there's still masses of work to do. I'm yeah. still, I still have vulnerabilities. Yeah. Uh, and God is still leading me. But I'm looking forward to that day in heaven where I'm not going to be anxious at all. Mm. I'm not going to be depressed at all. Mm. And I'm not even going to think about having a drink. I would say I'd also get on a plane confidently, but I'm not sure there are any planes in heaven. So we may never be able to test that one out. Uh, but I will have that confidence uh, that would be needed. Brilliant. You mentioned anxiety. That's kind of our theme for this evening. Um, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, we, we hear the word anxiety and we think all sorts of things. How would you define anxiety? Just give us a bit of a working definition that we can chat about. So anxiety at its core is a fear. Um, but it's not a good kind of fear. So I don't know Banstead pretty well. I haven't seen any wild lions wandering around. But if I were wandering through Banstead and a wild lion came at me, it would be appropriate to be scared. Mm -hmm. Fear is a God-given response to help us get out the way of danger. But the trouble is, anxiety isn't a fear of something objective that causes us to act. Anxiety is a fear of something possible, that tends to cause us to become inert. So rather than being scared of something real, Mm. it's I'm scared of what someone might think of me, or Mm. I'm scared of what might happen in that interview, Mm. or I'm scared of what could happen if if this scenario happens. So And and because it's a fear of something slightly fluffy, something that we can't necessarily get our hands on, rather than actually going into fight-or-flight mode, we tend to go into sit and just let those thoughts go round in our minds time mm. and time again mode. Mm. And any of us that have ever struggled with anxiety will know that if you're worried about what, what maybe you, you have done and, and what people might be thinking or what you might, done and might do and what people might be thinking, you just tend to sit there and go, oh my goodness, what if? I don't know. Maybe they are. They probably are. And it just spirals. Mm. But you don't actually progress anywhere. Mm. You just get stuck. What, what are the other, some of the other signs of anxiety? What, uh, what are the symptoms of it? What, what does it look like in, in people or in, in your experience? It can look so different from person to person. But for most people, there'll certainly be some physical uh, symptoms. 
uh, that the palpitations, the sweaty palms, the, the headache that just won't shift, that the tension in the shoulders and the neck, the glorious gastrointestinal joys uh, <laughs> that come uh, when you are feeling anxious. Uh, there'll be um, some emotional um, uh, symptoms, that feeling of being overwhelmed, that, that tearfulness, that wanting to run, not being able to cope with life, that, that catastrophizing that that little mistake that we've made is going to end up having some catastrophic impact. Mm. I mean, in my head, I've basically brought down the world mm. uh, uh, some of the, the little mistakes that I've made, mm. uh, but we, it just spirals out of control. Mm. But there'll also be those relational signs and symptoms as well. Sometimes when we are anxious, uh, we just want to run. We want to withdraw, have a, you know, curl up under the duvet and make the world go away. We just don't want to engage I mean, sometimes when we're anxious, just coming into a room like this can feel quite scary. Lots of people uh, not quite sure uh, exactly what's going on. Uh, and so actually um, wanting to run, wanting to withdraw from our friends and our family is quite common. Mm. But also, I guess a number of us will have seen this as well. We can get a bit grumpy in our anxiety as well. Because we're so scared, we can lash out. Because we're so worried that we... And, might, people might reject us. We, we sometimes make the first move and push people away. Mm. And because we're so stressed, the little things actually make a big difference. Mm. Uh, one example I often think about is, you know, it's the sock on the bedroom floor. You know, we know a sock on the bedroom floor is not a big deal. It's there, you pick it up, you put it in the washing basket, job done, takes a second. But in those moments when we're anxious... That sock is an act of war. You know, how dare they? Do they not know what stress we're under at the moment? Do they not realize that everything that I'm going through, do they care so little about me that they can't even be willing to put their things away? Uh, and part of our brain knows it's just a sock. Yeah. But part of our brain just amplifies it into a relational crisis where we just feel that we, we're not loved anymore. Mm. That's really helpful. Um, if there's anyone here tonight who really thinks they're wrestling with some pretty significant anxiety, what, what help is out there for people? Uh, what help have you found helpful from, say, GPs or uh, others that have been helpful? Yeah, and if you are struggling with anxiety, I really would encourage you to go and see your GP. Um, as human beings, we are kind of body and soul, if you like, uh, and that body bit, the fleshly bit, that does matter. Uh, and uh, whilst you know, people like me, our anxiety can come from our painful experiences, our anxiety can, in part at least, come from our biochemistry as well. Yeah. And therefore, going to see a GP to talk about you know, our biochemistry and you know, talking therapies and things like that can be really useful. And, and medication can be incredibly useful. Mm. But there's also a, a lot that we can do that just practical wisdom... Uh, breathing, um, I know it's a bit cliched, but slow breaths in through the nose, out through the mouth. The more anxious we get, the more shallow our breathing becomes. So by forcing our breathing to become deeper, breathing from down here, then that actually physiologically helps us to, to calm a bit. Grounding techniques. Uh, the most simple is this, um, just tapping our, our fingers uh, against our thumb. The, the human body responds more quickly to touch than it does to words. Uh, and I guess most of us know that because we know that when we're upset, someone giving us a hug tends to work a lot better than someone telling us to calm down. Um, 
But obviously, there's not always someone to give you an appropriate hug at every moment in time. And so in a panic, just bringing that physical touch to yourself um, in, in those appropriate ways can be really helpful. Uh, another grounding technique is just by looking around, going five things you can see, four things you can hear, three things you can touch, two things you can smell, one thing you can taste. Stimulating the senses uh, mm. can be really good. It's really helpful. Would you say there's a spiritual dimension to anxiety? If so, what does it look like? There can be. Um, so I think if you look at the roots of anxiety, that there are three of them. There's the stuff that's coming at us, that's the stresses of life. We live in a world that's a bit broken, a lot broken, and therefore, you know, tough stuff does come at all of us. That's one of the roots. Uh, The other thing is stuff that's happening inside us, our biochemistry. That can be another root of anxiety. But there can also be stuff coming out of us as well. Hmm. Um, Stuff that we are maybe wanting that is not good for us, Hmm. uh, maybe not part of God's plan for us. Uh, so for one example I often use is anyone that knows me will know that I'm a little bit of a workaholic. Um, and uh, unsurprisingly, my anxiety does get worse when I'm exhausted. It does for most of us. Uh, and God has kind of said uh, the pattern for human beings is to work for six days and rest for one. That, that's how we're made. And actually, if you work for six days and rest for one, then life generally, unless, unless you're unwell, should be you know, fairly manageable. But of course, you know, workaholics like me, we don't like the rest for one day bit. Mm. We want the, I, I want the promotion or I want, I want people to think I'm doing a really good job or I just want to fulfill my, my own desires. And now I push myself and I push myself and I push myself far beyond what God says mm. uh, is good for me. Uh, and therefore, I end up exhausting myself and actually making my anxiety far worse. Mm. And there can be other dimensions to that as well. You know, sometimes we can think that the life that we've been given is somehow second class. Uh, that, I mean, I'm, I'm currently not married, and um, there is a sense in which I could, I mean, I actually quite enjoy being single, but there's a sense in which I, I could sit here and go, well, God hasn't given me uh, a husband, um, and uh, therefore God clearly doesn't love me, and therefore my life is second class. Uh, and I can get quite angry at that point. Mm. Uh, and that kind of discontent can also mm. uh, spur mm. our, our, our anxiety on. I have to be slightly um, sort of nuanced with that. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. But, but there can be stuff coming out of us that can contribute to yeah. our anxiety. And yeah. obviously sometimes, I mean, this won't apply to a lot of us in this room, but if we've like committed some major crime or something like that yeah. and our anxiety is about the police about to knock on our door, well, clearly that is, you yeah. know, to do with our our hearts going astray and our actions going astray. And maybe we will see some of that in smaller forms in our lives. So from your experience and not just your own story, but in helping others too, what what does Jesus offer people who are anxious that we can't find anywhere else? Yeah, great question. And my experience is so much, but it's not a click of the finger and everything gets made better. Hmm. Uh, He he provides us with a a community of the church, and that is a a beautiful thing, Um, as people that can encourage us, pray for us, provide us with meals, help us get to the GP, go for a walk, exercise can be great for anxiety. Uh, He can provide us uh, with a relationship with him, Mm. and actually knowing that we are friends with the king of all things does make the world a less scary place. Mm. But one of the, the... most exciting things that I found is that God provides an antidote, an answer to all the lies that anxiety tends to whisper in our ears. 
Um, and, and so things like anxiety will say, you're all alone, no one cares about you. But God says, I am with you, and I am happy to be with you for the rest of eternity. You know, our, our anxiety will say, everything is out of control. But God says, I have a plan and a purpose. He doesn't tell us every single day exactly what that plan and that purpose is. We don't get a post-it note from heaven outlining what's going on. But, but there is a sense in which he's going, whatever you're going through, I'm going to knit it together. Mm. And I'm going to knit it together into something beautiful and something meaningful. Mm. In our anxiety, we can sit here and think, that, that I can't do this. I, I just don't have the capacity to, to keep going. But in the, in the Bible, we see stories of how God provides and protects one day at a time for anyone that chooses to follow him. Mm. In our anxiety, we can sit there going, I am such a mess. I have messed up so badly. But the Bible, God says, but there's an antidote for that. I can forgive you. You can come to me to be washed clean. And not just a little bit clean, but, but completely clean. Mm. All of the guilt gone. All of the legacy of the past gone. Mm. I can sit here in my anxiety and think, I'm, I'm too broken. Too much bad stuff's happened. I'm too much of a mess to ever uh, be whole again. Mm. Uh, and God says, I'm active. I'm working. Mm. In, the, um, in the line of work I do, we, we sometimes talk about um, run-down houses. I don't know if Vance did very well. Um, it looks a very nice area, but I'm guessing somewhere there's a run-down house. That kind of house where the, the wall's falling over, the garden's overgrown, the, the curtains are falling down, the roof tiles are coming off. And it's very easy to walk past that kind of house and go, oh, what a mess. And, and sometimes I think we can look in the mirror and look at ourselves and we can just go, oh, what a mess. And we can have the temptation to think mm. that God in heaven is looking down at us and going, oh my goodness, Banstead, what a mess. Mm. But do you ever watch those renovation programs, uh, those garden SOSs and things like that? In the hands of the right people, that house, you can think, oh, if I just painted that, and if we mended that, and if we, we've replaced that, oh yeah, that, that, that's going to look great. And in the same way, God looks at human beings and goes, well, if I can help them reorientate there and, and believe that about me, and, and if we can surround them with those people and help them see that about themselves, and if we can just go on that journey. It's a bit like God looking down from heaven at people like us, messy people like us, and going, not what a mess, but, huh, what a bunch of fixer-uppers. They're going to be great. They're going to be beautiful. And God takes us on that journey towards beauty. And I think that is what helps the anxiety begin to subside. Mm. No promises that it instantly goes. Yeah. But when you're living life in that context, then you see security and hope in much clearer ways. Yeah. Great. Um, after the break, we're going to look, Helen, at uh, an episode in Jesus' life where he meets a woman who had a very messy life uh, and background. Uh, you write a little bit about her in your book. What draws you to her story? The uh, woman in the story that um, Angie's going to tell us later was a bit of a no-hoper in the eyes of the people uh, that she lived with. Uh, she had a reputation 
uh, for being immoral. She had a reputation of having a messy life. She had a reputation for just being someone you didn't want to talk to, you didn't want to get close to. In fact, no one did get close to her. They let her go and collect water all by herself rather than going with the rest of the team. And I guess I have felt like that woman, and I'm guessing some people in this room will have felt like that woman too. Maybe you do now. And I just love the way that Jesus didn't buy into the whole, she's a mess, keep away. Jesus moved towards her, started up a conversation, and gave her hope. Mm. It's what he did for that woman, it's what he's done for me. And I know it's what he's willing to do for lots of other people too. Fantastic. We look forward to looking into that story together. Um, Hello again, everyone. Great to um, hear you discussing. Thank you to those who have sent in questions already for Helen. We'll get to those soon. Uh, Do uh, grab a drink and find a seat if you can. And um, right now, we'd love you. There's some of these little booklets on each of your tables. I'd love you to pick one up with me uh, and, and turn to page eight. This little booklet is called The, the Gospel According to John. It uh, was written in the first century by one of Jesus' followers called John. Uh, and he writes so that all who read it, including us today, uh, might know exactly what Jesus said and did. Uh, and so that people like us can, can believe in Jesus and find life in his name for ourselves. Uh, as I mentioned before the break, we're going to take a, a short look now at an episode Uh, in Jesus' life, where he met with a woman whose life was messy, whose past was messy, uh, and whose story speaks to us uh, about the hope Jesus offers us all. Uh, So this is John chapter 4, beginning on page 8. I'm going to start reading some of her story from verse 4. That's the little number 4 in the text there. Now he, that's Jesus, had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. They say that only mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the noonday sun. Uh, But here's Jesus, hot at the hottest part of the day, tired after a long journey. Uh, But there's a good chance that he might get a drink because he's landed right by a well. But the well is not just incidental to this story. The well is a a key prop here in our story. We're told this was Jacob's well. Uh, Jacob, you might have heard of him. He was one of the patriarchs of Israel. He had 12 sons, one of whom was Joseph with the coat, and uh, they became the 12 tribes of Israel. And in that older part of the Bible, in Jacob's day and age, uh, wells generally played quite a significant part in proceedings. Wells were where Men sort of arrived and they went away having found a wife, and women arrived and went away having found a husband, uh, and um, things like that. So wells were a place to find love, but they were also a place to find joy and life. After all, they're a well. They give you thirst-quenching water, fresh water that you need. That's what we need on a hot day, isn't it? Especially just to survive as human beings. We can't go long without water. Nothing satisfies on a, on a hot day like a cool, refreshing drink. Now, that's true physically, but it's also true spiritually, the Bible would tell us. Just as Helen was talking about there being a spiritual dimension to anxiety, there's also a spiritual thirst in each of us. That might be news to you, but I think if we um, explore that a bit more together, you'll agree that 
we, we can see that inside each of us. There's a spiritual thirst. It's a deeper thirst. It's about where you and I go to find life itself. Helen was telling us about her life and uh, where she went with life as a result of what had happened to her, the experiences she'd been through, uh, where she took that in terms of uh, her life and how that affected her. Well, our spiritual thirst is, is, is seeking answers to, to those deeper things about who we are. It's, it's asking those big questions. Why, why are we here? Where is life going? What am I going to do with the bad things that has been, have been done to me and that I've done to other people? Where do you go to seek that quench of that thirst, that spiritual thirst? Where might that be for you? If you had to complete this sentence, what would it look like? If you had to say, in order for me to really live and have a fulfilled life, I just need dot, dot, dot. Maybe it's a a thing or a person or an occupation or a possession or just for people to see you a certain way. I need that to have life. Or or to put it the other way around, if, if you feel like today actually life's pretty good, that you don't suffer with anxiety, that life is generally okay, you have everything you need, you're very happy. What if I was to say, well, what thing or things in your life, if someone was to take those away from you, would make life just horrific for you and not worth living anymore? I think if we try and identify those things, we, we realize that those are the things we're going to. Those are the the wells we're digging in, trying to find this satisfaction, trying to find this true life. But can they really deliver that true life? As I said earlier, wells often stood for more than uh, what was at face value in the Bible. So uh, uh, after Jacob, but before Jesus, a few hundred years before, uh, there was a prophet called Jeremiah uh, who wrote down God's words for God's people Uh, And he he said this, he said, God says to his people, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Do you hear how God is described there? He is the fountain or the spring of living water. The God of the Bible, the, the God who Jesus reveals to us, is this wonderful fountain and source of, of life, of living water, of, of hope, of light, of joy. He, he's the source of all those things. He's where they can all be traced back to. And he, he pours them all out, offering them to the people he's made. But yet, what do people do with this fountain? What do we do? We reject that fountain. We reject the true source of eternal life. And we say, I think I'm just going to go over here and dig my own well and look for my own satisfaction. Look for my own way of doing life that can solve things. But those are broken wells. Sure, they might bring some help or pleasure or joy or satisfaction, but can they really provide the water of life itself? I think before long we realize that many of the places we dig for these things are flawed in many ways. If we trust them completely, we can become disappointed, disillusioned quickly sometimes. Meanwhile, God is overflowing as this, this fountain, this giver of life. And we're walking past him and, uh, and digging our own wells. And we're thirsty and we are unsettled. We are anxious. We are fearful. 
And yet God steps into people's lives who are like that, just as he does with this lady here. He shows up, and in Jesus, he comes to to be one of us, a fully-fledged human being, God in flesh, and he meets people just where they need him the most. So back to our story. Uh, Let's pick it up in in verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So here we see, never mind the, the cultural or religious or ethnic barriers to life, Jesus doesn't allow any of that to stop him being the God who comes to meet people right at their point of thirst, wherever they're thirsty, and he comes to offer living water. He says that, verse 10. He says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So Jesus here puts his his finger on the things where our deepest thirsts are, like he does with this woman here. And he, he says, effectively, well, that, that well you're digging over there with life, trying to satisfy that great thirst, it, it's not going to satisfy. But I am. I am the living water you're looking for. I can give you that eternal life. That's how uh, Jesus describes this living water as we read on. So verse 11, uh, the woman still thinks he's talking about the water in the well. Uh, Sir, she says, verse 11, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. There it is. That's what Jesus is offering. The living water is eternal life. A life beyond the grave. A life, as we've been thinking about with Helen tonight, a life that isn't immune to to struggles, but a life that truly satisfies. A life, yes, that will still have suffering in it, but a life that has a secure destination where suffering will not be there anymore. A life, yes, that isn't perfect, but a life that has assurance and hope and the power of God inside. What Jesus does next is he he puts his finger on where this woman is currently looking for life. Uh, So verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, Call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. So the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. We are thirsty creatures, aren't we, physically and spiritually, and we look for life in all the wrong places, They can be bad places that are just downright harmful to us or good places that we think are going to satisfy us more than they actually do, more than they were designed to do in the first place. For this woman, it seems that marriage was the place where she was digging. 
but also for her that she had seen more than her fair share of marriages end. We don't know if that's destructively or uh, by death intervening. But even the best marriages are till death us do part, aren't they? They don't go on forever. They can't give life beyond the grave. But here comes Jesus. Here he comes. He steps in as, as the promised Messiah, the one who offers satisfaction for our deepest longings, the one who deals with our deepest fears and anxieties. Jesus and the woman have a little discussion then about worship. Um, We're going to skip forward to verse uh, 25, so on the next page there. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. All the things this woman was looking for, all that she was hoping for and digging for, Jesus says, they're, they're fulfilled in, in me. I, I'm who you need. After all, he is the Son of God, the fountain of living water, the Messiah, God's promised rescuer and king. He, he's come down to not only become human as one of us, but to step right into our messy lives as he does with this lady here. To those who have turned their backs completely on God and lived our own way and ignored his fountain and dug our own wells trying to satisfy our great thirsts. To those people, to us people, he offers eternal life, a new life, a new start, a transformation from the inside out, something that satisfies the deep thirst we have. Maybe you've been brought here this evening by a friend who is a Christian. Uh, Why not ask them, something about that some more. Ask them, you know, for you, what's it like? Does Jesus truly satisfy you? How how does he do that? What's different about Jesus? What makes him the one that satisfies your soul? Do chat about that. Now, the woman who met Jesus that day, she couldn't wait to tell others about him. Uh, Helen writes about that in her book. She says, this outcast woman went door to door around her town and encouraged loads of people people who would have shunned her in the past to come and meet this incredible man. One meeting with Jesus, and this woman went from being distant from God to being close. She went from being on the edge of her community to playing a pivotal role. We read about that just over the page. If you flick over to page 10, uh, top of the page there, verse 39. This is what happened. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I've ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. See, other people are starting to believe in this Jesus now and trust him as their source of true eternal life and forgiveness and cleansing and the the God who's in charge of the universe. Now, they do that, yes, by listening to the woman, but also they come and they listen to Jesus themselves and they believe. Uh, We'd love you to have the opportunity to do that too. We've heard some of Helen's story. Many of us in Christchurch can tell you our own varied stories about what Jesus has done and what life with Jesus looks like. But we'd love for you to look into who Jesus is for yourself. Uh, This Gospel of John, this is yours to take home free if you'd like to, if you'd like to read it. Uh, We'd love you to discover more about Jesus. 
Uh, one thing you do if you do read this all the way to the end is that you'll discover that this is not the only time that Jesus is thirsty in the gospel. The other time comes right towards the end of the, the account John gives us. Um, it's in chapter 19 when Jesus is dying on the cross. You can look it up later. Do you know, one of the things he says as he is dying on that cross is he says, I am thirsty. I am thirsty. Now, bearing in mind what we've seen in chapter 4, that sounds strange. Here's the one who is the fountain of living water, and yet he is saying, I am thirsty. What's going on there? Well, what Jesus is doing is he's, he, he's swapping places with us. So we've got us over here, human beings, made by a loving God to know him, to, to love him. We've rejected this God. We've turned away from his, his light and life and love. Uh, and and we're, we're in a mess in general. We've rejected him. We deserve his, his judgment. We don't deserve his love. And we are thirsty, and nothing can satisfy. So that's us over here. Uh, and then over on the other side, we've got Jesus, the, the God-man, God-made flesh, the fountain of living water. And he's offering to swap places with us to suffer for us, to be judged for us, to thirst for us, to take what we deserve from God so that he can bear that for us and then rise up again, defeating death and and pouring out eternal life to all who will come to him. And so this this offer Jesus makes to the woman here in John chapter 4, it extends to all of us today, to all who hear about him, Jesus offers life. And the question is, will we turn from looking for life in all the wrong places and turn to Jesus in faith to accept what he says about himself, what he says about us, and to ultimately accept him as our king, our source of life, our our God? That's something you can do today if you would like to. If you know this all makes sense and you believe Jesus died and rose for you and you want to begin following him, you, you can say that to him today. Uh, shortly, we're just going to show a, a quick video uh, and we'll leave just a few seconds silence before that video. Uh, and the, the video is about our Exploring Jesus sessions coming up. There are a chance for you to look more into who Jesus is some more. Um, we look at this booklet, John's Gospel, a few more episodes from the life of Jesus. It's a chance to ask any of your questions that you like, and uh, it's all very informal. There's no commitment on your part. Uh, We'd love to see you there. Uh, Let me also draw your attention to um, this blue card that's on your tables. It's called Next Steps. Um, If you'd like to do something and take steps towards following Jesus tonight, uh, you can either fill this in with a paper and uh, pen tonight, or you can um, find it on our website and, and do that as well. Um, All it asks for is just a few details on the back. Tell us when you were here. uh, And if you'd like what you see in the Exploring Jesus video and want to sign up to that, you can tick that. Uh, But you can also tick a box that says, look, I get this. I want to make that step now. And the box says, speak to someone about becoming a Christian. You can do that. You can uh, talk to somebody today. Uh, You can talk to me or Helen or anybody that you see with a name badge on uh, at church, and we'd be delighted to speak to you. You can even pray to God today uh, and pray um, your own words, 
using whatever words you feel prompted to pray uh, before God. But it'd be good to, if you do want to pray, to acknowledge that God is the true fountain of life. Be good to admit that you've been looking for life in all the wrong places. You know how you've been doing that. You can confess that to God. You can admit how that's hurt you and others sometimes. And you can thank God that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for your sin and rose again to new life. You can express to God in in the quiet, in, in your own heart, that you're turning from those things that you were living for and trusting in to Jesus for forgiveness and life. Feel free to to do that in the couple of seconds quiet we'll have now before the video, Uh, or you can have a look at um, the Next Steps card during the video as well, Uh, and uh, if you'd like to do any of those things, just leave us your details. You can either leave these on the the table uh, where you are, or there's a box just by the, the welcome desk at the back. You can pop them in there as well. Just a few seconds quiet, then we'll hear... Um, about exploring Jesus, and then we'll move to our question time. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Helen. Do come and join us again. Um, do uh, consider signing up to Exploring Jesus. You can just uh, tick the relevant box on the Next Steps card. Uh, we'd love to see you there. Thank you so much for sending in your questions as well. We've got um, lots to talk about, um, and uh, they've been coming in at all angles. Um, yeah, let, let's start with, um, by the way, you can vote for questions on this fancy thing as well. So if you really think, oh, yeah, that's a good one, you can tick the like button and things like that. Um, can I vote for questions, too? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you can't vote them down. Though, but, <laughs> um, I think it's a question a lot of us are asking, particularly since COVID and the last couple of years. Um, is, is it normal for everybody to just have this sort of underlying background level of anxiety um, and at, at what point does anxiety get to a point where you have to take steps to, to deal with it? The statistics pre-COVID were saying that at any given moment in time about 6% of us were feeling anxious. Mm. At the height of the pandemic the statistics were saying 66% of us mm. were feeling anxious. Mm. That is an astonishing rise in anxiety, and and not a surprising one. I mean, we were having to uh, learn to do life in such a new way. The messages coming from the media uh, were uh, terrifying, and, and, you know, with with some good reason. Uh, We were learning a new vocabulary. Uh, We either experienced the crashing silence of being stuck in at home, or the crashing chaos of everyone being home all the time mm. uh, and having to juggle schooling and, uh, and many other things uh, alongside working from home. And those things are hard. Mm. And we, whilst the, those anxiety levels are going down now, we're not yet back at 6%. Mm. Uh, and we, I think it's important to acknowledge we are coming out of what has been one of the toughest periods in, in the last few decades, at least, in British history. And... There's a sense that we need to be gentle with ourselves and acknowledge that anxiety is going to be part of a lot of our stories, uh, but also encourage each other that there is a hope in, those, in mm. that and we don't have to get stuck in our anxiety either. Yeah, thank you. Um, trying to help people maybe that we love who suffer with anxiety, questions come in. What's the most annoying thing someone can say to you when you're in the heights of anxiety? <laughs> don't worry. 
Um, and it's not that don't worry is wrong, because sometimes it's actually really useful um, when you're, you're looking at, you know, the, the 101 things that you think could go wrong. Uh, if someone says don't worry, I mean, they've probably got a point. Actually, it's, it's statistically very unlikely that those 101 things are all going to go wrong. Um, but actually, you just sit there and think, well, if I could stop worrying, I would. Um, so I think anything that's trite, anything that's simplistic, anything that tries to put a sticking plaster on, um, on the problem um, uh, is very unhelpful. Mm. What, what tends to be much more helpful if we're friends is going, tell me more about that. How does it feel? <clears throat> what, what, what are you worried about? How can I help you? Uh, mm. Who would it be good for us to, to seek help from? Mm. Uh, and actually, if you, if you go in with questions rather than solutions, mm. then you're actually much more likely uh, to be helpful. And I think that the second part of that previous question was when we should get help. Yeah. Uh, and I think the answer to that is as soon as possible. Yeah. I think there's, there's a bit of a... Maybe it's a British thing, I don't yeah. know. But actually, we, we cope until we can cope no longer. Yeah. Uh, and that means that we just kind of go, I'm fe- not feeling very good, but I'm not going to tell anyone. I'm not going to feel very good, but I'm not telling anyone. I'm not going to feel very good, but I'm not telling anyone. Oh, my goodness, my life has fallen apart. I better tell somebody. Yeah. Actually, it's much better if we're around down here and going, you know what, life is really hard. And just share that with a friend, uh, talk about it, uh, share it with someone that might want to pray, someone that might want to encourage you to see the GP uh, and, and get that help early. Yeah. acknowledging that we all need it yeah. uh, and there's nothing to be ashamed of even when we do. Any practical tips on just how you broach a conversation about your own anxiety with somebody else? Um, I've got a question here. How can I raise my anxiety, the subject of it, with, with somebody, um, another Christian friend or somebody else? There's one thing I've noticed uh, about us, and, and it's not you personally, us as in humanity, um, we all have a stock answer to a certain question. I'm just going to try this out there just to test my hypothesis. If I were to come up to you and say, how are you doing? You would answer by going... <laughs> and the trouble is we're often not. Now, obviously, you don't want to answer the how are you question with absolute minuscule detail every time you get asked it. Mm. Uh, there are some people you want to confide in and some people that, you know, you want to have far less information about your life, and that's entirely appropriate. But I think, as a humanity, if we can try and not answer that question with I'm fine, that would be a great first start. Unless, of course, we are fine. I mean, it does happen. Um, but um, actually... Be willing to be a little bit honest. Um, uh, and I suppose we can take the first step with that when actually we're feeling relatively, relatively strong. Because mm. it's actually really hard to take that first step when you're feeling vulnerable. Mm. So actually now, if you're in a bit of a good place at the moment and someone asks you how you are, you know, you know just say, actually, I'm doing pretty well, thank you, but I, I'm still not sleeping. Or I'm doing pretty well, thank you, but... Yeah, I am finding I am still concerned about uh, my children or an elderly relative or my health or my job or or whatever it might be. Just Mm. start that conversation. Mm. And the more we can have a culture uh, in in families, in churches, in society where we're just willing to go, you know what, I'm anxious. And the other person goes, yeah, yeah, I know, I get where you're coming from. I get anxious too. Then that's just a brilliant level playing field where we can all just have really helpful conversations, mm. helping each other to spur each other on. Thank you.
Um, we've referred to the Bible this evening. I've talked to you about John's Gospel, and um, we've just looked at one episode in the Bible. But does the Bible have anything else to say about anxiety? Oh, so much. Uh, and there are certain verses that you can kind of like Google. You know, you can go to a Bible app and you can Google the word anxiety or anxious. Uh, and there are some some great verses that you'll come up with. You know, but verses where God is in the middle of our anxiety. And it's great there are a lot of verses. That means God knows that we get anxious. Mm. It's not a surprise to him. Uh, And we can Google those verses and we can go, anxiety, oh, God's encouraging us to pray. Or anxiety, oh, God's encouraging us to look at how he provides for us in the middle of that. And and those Mm. kind of verses can actually be really useful. But actually, it's much wider than just Googling the specific word. Because the Bible talks about God being a a provider and a protector. There are loads of images of God, especially in the songbook of the Bible, the Psalms, Mm. uh, where it talks about God being a rock and a refuge and a stronghold and a fortress uh, and even a a wing of a bird that that covers uh, the fledgling's head. And it's that kind of imagery that helps us sort of navigate some of anxiety. I, I watch a little bit too much of Lord of the Rings, little a little bit of information about me. Uh, and I love the battle scenes. I love the cinematography of it all. Um, but one thing that you notice, when an alarm is rung in a battle scene, everyone just heads for the fortress. You just pick up your basket of apples and you peg it there. Nobody hears the alarm, does their hair and their makeup, and then goes mm. to the fortress. Nobody kind of does housework in the house and then goes to the fortress. You just run to that fortress with all your mess so that you can be safe. Mm. And that's the kind of imagery that God uses about himself. He's like, don't worry about the mess, just come to me. Come to me for the protection and the provision that you need. Don't clean yourself up first, I'll do the cleaning up. And it's as we get into those kind of metaphors, and there's one of him being a king, there's one of him being a shepherd who will lead us through life uh, to, to, to the beauty of eternity. Uh, and as he is that shepherd, he has two things in his hands, uh, a staff to kind of bat away the things that would hurt us. Uh, no, a rod, sorry, to bat away <laughs> the things that will hurt us, and a staff to kind of help us come back on the straight and narrow when we wander off. And actually, whilst it's great to just Google the words anxiety and anxious and see what the Bible says there, it's as we get to know who God is and what he's doing and how he loves us and leads us and and how big he is. Mm. You know, they are some of the great places to go uh, when life is hard. Thank you. A couple more questions. Um, What's better, talking about anxiety or praying about anxiety? Oh, what a brilliant question. Uh, And I think... Uh, both are essential, but I think prayer has always got to be best. Because talking to the God who is perfect, the God who is king, the God who is able to, to see all things, know all things, and do all things, has got to be better than talking to me. Um, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not a terrible person, but I am quite limited, uh, as we all are. Uh, and so the Bible always encourages us to talk to God. And we can talk to God uh, and just pour out our heart to him. We don't have to use special words. Uh, we can just, uh, special positions, we can just go, Lord, I am struggling right now, and I'm just going to burble at you because I know I need your help. Mm. But actually, the Bible's also really clear that actually he hasn't called us to become individual islands as humans or as Christians. He's knitted us into a community, 
Uh, and part of the reason for that community, it's not the only reason, but part of the reason for that community is that we're designed to help each other get through the tough times. So first port of call, most important port of call, is always going to be God. But we need each other. We need that, that physical, metaphorical hug from one another, that linking of arms to get through life. Mm. So let's, let's just talk a lot. Mm. Great. A couple of people are asking, you mentioned earlier about anxiety in the Bible. It's great that God talks about anxiety in the Bible. Um, but how does he view it? So a few people are asking, is being anxious a sin? Is it frowned on by God? That's a great question. And some of the, the phrases in, in the Bible say things like, do not be anxious. And you've got to be really careful about the tone of voice there because you're going to ask yourself the question, is that do not be anxious, you <laughs> irritating bunch of worms? Will you just stop it? <laughs> or is that, come on, my children, don't be anxious. Come to me because I love you and life with me is possible and safe and we can persevere together now I think some of the time especially when we're feeling anxious we think God's words fall into the first category and we think it's a grumpy command from a God that's exasperated with us but actually if we look at those contexts of those verses it's much more an invitation now it's it's quite a firm invitation it's saying come on don't 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 just sit there in your anxiety come on come to me and let's work it through follow me I'll provide I'll protect I'll lead you to somewhere better but you do need to get up and follow me in this Um, it's not an inert thing but it's not an angry thing so generally, I would say that you know, anxiety is not a sin, it's a struggle, and God wants us to lead us through it. But I think, as we were saying earlier, just occasionally, if you are anxious about having knocked over the local Lloyds Bank and you're anxious about the police coming to get you, yeah. I yeah. think we can fairly safely say there's some sin in there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. so you might sometimes want to look at what the root mm. of the anxiety is, because sometimes we can be anxious about stuff we've done significantly wrong, mm. and then actually saying sorry is the best course of action. Um, a little bit related to that, I'm going to try and phrase this question what what about if we think we've we've caused anxiety in somebody else so the example someone's given is um maybe as a parent i've been too strict with my child growing up and i still love them but i feel i'm somehow responsible for their anxiety what what hope is there for a a person who feels like that thank you Uh, and that's a real heartfelt question and you know, if, if you want to come and talk to Andrew and I about that mm. afterwards or, or anyone else that's uh, sort of in a, in a capacity here, d- please do, because we can only give very brief answers from a, a stage like this. Um, I think three things to say is one is please do talk to somebody else, because one of the things about anxiety is we often see what we've done wrong as much bigger than it actually is. Mm. Uh, and sometimes I think I've wrecked, I, I remember one occasion where I thought I'd actually wrecked somebody's life by what I had said and done. And and fear and trembling, I I went to them to apologize profusely for this terrible thing that I'd done, and they hadn't even remembered I'd done it. Mm -hmm. So there is a sense that in our anxiety, sometimes we we think we've had far more power and far more Mm. detrimental effect on someone than we really have. So bring someone else in on that conversation and just check out how, how things really are. I think the second thing to say is, if there really have been mistakes, as there are in every relationship... There's no such thing as a relationship where we haven't made mistakes and hurt another human being. There is forgiveness for that. Uh, and the third thing to say is, there's no such thing as a situation that cannot be turned around in the love of God. 
So even if there have been mistakes, and there's still an if in that sentence, but even if there have been mistakes, and even if there have been consequences, it's not you've gone off the edge of a cliff and there's no hope. With the Lord, there is always a turning around. There is always hope. It's like that run-down house that can be fixed up again. Keep coming to him, keep coming to your friends, keep coming to people at church for the help and the hope you need because the situation is not hopeless by any means. Thank you. It's a good place to finish. Should we say thank you again to Helen for joining us in this story? Apologies that we went slightly later than we'd planned, um, but thank you for sticking around. Just a reminder, um, you're very welcome to stay for as long as you like here, talk about what we've been thinking about around your tables. There's plenty of uh, drinks and food and things. Uh, reminder, you can take your own next steps towards faith in Jesus by filling in the appropriate part of this blue card and, and dropping it in the box or, or giving it to the, leaving it on the table or just giving it to somebody you know from, from Christchurch, that's fine. Um, and, and do chat to anybody with a lanyard or Helen and I if you've got anything more you'd like to ask. Um, so thanks to Helen, thanks to you all for coming and uh, we hope to see you soon. Good night.